Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, and read with me again verse 6. The message will focus on the second um, statement of this verse, but let's read this verse in its entirety. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Perhaps like many of you, these words are most familiar because of how they were popularized by a man by the name of Handel, who was one of the great opera writers in the English-speaking world, and he uh, composed that great work, Handel's Messiah, which is one of the great masterpieces of all classical music, one that, unlike other operas, is in English, so it can be understood, and unlike many operas, is very spiritually edifying because it's almost entirely scriptures from the Old and New Testament concerning our great God and Savior. I remember at one point before I came into the ministry when my wife and I were traveling on a, on a trip just listening to Handel's Messiah as we were uh, driving through the mountains of Alberta and just drinking in those words and, and enjoying uh, that time and and at the time, thinking about why the government shall be upon his shoulder. Sounds beautiful, sounds very fitting. A verse that is speaking of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was born of a virgin and given as the Son of God unto sinners, as the great and mighty um, Savior of his people. These names and titles are given to him in the latter part of the verse. But why does it say, and the government shall be upon his shoulder? Perhaps it's like so many verses in the Bible that we are so familiar with. We hear it and we maybe have memorized it. But what does it mean? What is the meaning of this phrase? Well, perhaps there is much that we could learn just by focusing on this phrase, considering its meaning in the context of all of Scripture and seeking to profit from it. I wish to speak this afternoon's Sabbath service upon the theme, Messiah's Government. Messiah's Government. I wish to Unfold the meaning here by first looking at the meaning of the word government, the meaning of the word government, and asking the question, what is this government that is being referred to? What is this government? And in the third place, we wish to consider our response to this government. So what is government? What is this government? What is our response to this government? Well, perhaps uh, like so many people today, the word government doesn't necessarily fill your mind with pleasant thoughts. Perhaps some of the immediate things that come to mind would be abuse of authority. Perhaps some of the things that come to mind would be corruption, 
inefficiency, bureaucracy, these sorts of things that come to mind. And the mere fact that that sort of thing comes to our mind today is reflective of the times in which we live. Indeed, in civil government, in those who have the authority to make laws in our land, often they are characterized not by a love for the people or a commitment to justice, but instead an abuse of authority. And so immediately we have bad thoughts of this word. It's also the case that if you look beyond just the civil government, the state, and look at the word more generally, as it uh, as the word in both the Hebrew and the English conveys the exercise of authority, the power to command and to direct others, immediately also we we have our backs back a bit. Why is that? Well, because we live in days where there is a crisis of authority. No one understands who has legitimate authority to tell anyone else what to do. It's a time people value their individual freedom. And so the idea of authority seems as though it's constraining, as though it's, it's uh, harmful to our well-being. I remember when I was studying a university degree in political science from a Marxist uh, political science faculty, one of the things that my instructors taught me was really all relationships, anything that goes on in human society, you can reduce it in, in a certain sense to the exercise of power. Everything is about power. Who has it and who doesn't have it? And you know what? All power is arbitrary. It's the will of the strongest over the weaker. And everything that people do Marxists believe, well, it's ultimately about legitimizing or excusing their own authority over others. It's all basically random chance. And so for that reason, we live in days where Marxism or critical theory or critical race theory, whatever you wish to call it, This has permeated all of our culture so that the idea here is that all power is wrong, at least unless you wield it. And you'll notice that many of the people who talk most about structures of power from a Marxist point of view, a a far-left communist point of view, they will essentially be trying to get more power for themselves in order to wield over others, to control and to reshape society according to their godless vision. So I say we live in a crisis of authority. There's basically two things going on all around us. There is tyranny, abuse of authority, and there's also anarchy, lawlessness, chaos, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, as we saw in the book of Judges. That is the crisis, and so it's good to reflect on, if we would understand this word in the broader context, what is government from a biblical point of view? What is government? Well, it all goes back to the very beginning, doesn't it, when God created man and woman after his own image. In the first chapter of Genesis, verse 26, we read this, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have 
dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Different Hebrew word, but the same, or at least a very similar concept. Dominion. Dominion. The idea here is that men and women, human beings, as they were created in the beginning, were to be God's kings and queens upon the earth. God who has all authority and power in himself as our creator and Lord, he says to men and women, you are to image me. You are to reflect my authority. And you are to use your authority, which I give you, in order to subdue the whole earth, in order to be my instruments for subduing all things according to my will. And so you see, authority comes from God, and it is given to every image bearer of God, every man and every woman. You are made in the image of God. And so the authority which you are to wield, according to God's original plan, is very important for you to understand. Some people call this the creation mandate or the dominion mandate. And this is the origin of all authority which we are to interact with. What's the first kind of biblical authority I would have you think about? Well, it comes from a verse that I have also quoted in a sermon about a month ago, but it's important. It's found in the book of Proverbs 20, chapter 25. Proverbs 25, verse 28. And it's a verse that speaks of individual self-government. This is what that verse says. It says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So the idea here is that the individual person, his spirit, his mind, and his heart... It's like a city. It has a government. It has a rule. It is to be exercised, this rule over the self. And where it is lacking, where there is not that self-control, self-government, and it's like a city without walls. It's easily invaded by the enemy and so taken over unto an evil purpose. To assume there is really what's found throughout the scriptures. Image bearers of God have an individual self-government in a certain sphere of life. Think about property. The commandment, thou shalt not steal. What does it assume? That you are given by God a government and a right over that which you own, over your property, the things that you possess. Likewise, you could think about something that like this, thou shalt not kill. What does that assume? Well, that you have a life which is given to you by God that others cannot infringe upon. They cannot injure you. And indeed, your life and your health, including your health decisions, well, they are entrusted to you by God. You are to take care of your body. You are to 
ensure that your decisions over your health are done according to the will of God for your own health and well-being. So be other examples. So every voluntary contract, every business arrangement, every um, agreement that you enter into, it's under this realm of self-government. You are not to violate your contracts with others. You are to honor those. Why? Because it's all in this realm of self-government, self-responsibility. Obvious things you might say, but I tell you, we live in days where this is under attack. We live in days where individual responsibility, freedom, and self-government is under attack because it is a barrier towards tyranny. So what we say is that this is an example of government in the biblical sense. What's another form of government? Well, let's go back to the book of Genesis. What is uh, in the chapter right after what we read in Genesis 1 about that dominion mandate of all men and women? Well, you read in Genesis 2, verse 26, about the government of the family, of the family. Genesis 2, verse 26. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Glorious thing, marriage. A man and a woman, a husband and a wife, cleaving unto one another in that holy covenant union of marriage. One man, one woman for life. What God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man put asunder. And so it's to be a union of intimacy for the sexual union, for pleasure and joy in that wonderful romance and intimacy, but as well for the bearing of children, for the raising of children, for mutual support and, and um, care for one another, a valuable instrument for God bringing order into the world. But it has a government, do you understand? The man or the husband is the head of the marriage. He has an authority from God, which his wife must submit to. And likewise, you could say that together, the husband and the wife, together wield authority in the marriage as a government in order to give commandments to the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, Paul writes. Indeed, that is of God, the government of the family. Likewise, the government of the church, the government of the church, If we say that the government of the family is for individual nurture and support and love and care, we would maybe say that the government of the church has a different end. It is rather that of the word and the sacraments. Listen to how this is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, the government over you, you could say. The rule over you have spoken unto you the word of God. So it's a government of the word, preaching the word, teaching the Bible, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or the end of their life. The goal of their life is indeed the glory of God. And so you see that this government, which is occupied with the preaching of the word, with the worship of God, with the discipling, of the nations is of God. The authority of pastors and elders, of consistories, 
is not of a human invention. It is not something that can be disregarded. No, it's a divine ordinance, a holy commandment from God that these are to be honored in their authority. And of course, what we call civil government. Civil government, the state. What is the role of that? Well, famous passage in Romans 13, verse 4, where it says concerning the state or the government, as we call him, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. For if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. What is the purpose of civil government? Well, it's to wield the sword, to wield that power to exercise violence, but not for any purpose. No, for the punishing of evil, criminals and evildoers, those who would break the law of God. And what is it for as well? Well, for the encouragement of those who do well, for those who do good. And this, again, by the standard of God's law. So thus you have all these. And immediately you begin in your mind to think of exceptions. How is it that all these things can become of God? Because we know the individual authority. Is it not abused? People use their individual authority to make destructive choices that affect themselves and others. You think of the authority of a husband, of a father, of parents. Is there not abuse in marriages? Do not some husbands abuse their wives and children? Do not some parents abuse their children? Do not some families have these kinds of problems? Or about the church? Do not many churches, so-called, overturn the word and the rule of God and invent their own rules for others to follow, which have no foundation in the Holy Scriptures whatsoever? What of the civil magistrate? Are there not many examples, both in this country and others, of rather than punishing the evil and rewarding the good, there is the calling of good evil and the calling of evil good, overturning the law of God, terrorizing the righteous and excusing and indeed encouraging the wicked. Well, this is so, but let me tell you this. None of that is of God. And none of that is true government. To the extent an individual or a family or a church or a state goes against that authority from God, to that extent it is no authority. Listen to what the great Reformed theologian of Scotland, Samuel Rutherford, said about this. He's writing about the civil government, but applies to all government, individual, family, church, or state. Listen to what he says. I lay down this maxim or rule of divinity or this rule of theology. Tyranny being a work of Satan is not from God because sin, either habitual or actual, is not from God. The power that is must be from God. The magistrate, as magistrate, is good in nature of office. And the intrinsic end of this office or the goal of this office, and he quotes Romans 13, verse 4, which we've read, For he is the minister of God for thy good, and therefore a power ethical, politic, or moral to oppress is not from God and is not a power, but a licentious deviation of a power. 
is no more from God than from sinful nature and the old serpent than a license to sin. Older language, you can get the sense of what he's saying, though. What he's saying is that that true authority which you must submit to is that which is conformity to the word and the will of God. So we must say with the apostles that if we are given the choice of obeying God or man, we must obey God rather than man. We must not be unthinking in our submission to authority, but we must say with Isaiah to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You don't obey unthinkingly. You obey as an image bearer of God, that which is in keeping with the word and the commandments of God. And where there is tyranny, the abuse of authority is not of God. It is not authority. What is the solution to this crisis of authority in which we live, congregation? How far have we fallen as a society from that which is good and right by the standard of God's law? Injustice, tyranny, chaos, anarchy, bloodshed, ignorance, hurt, all owing what? To the corruption of government by sin into tyranny and anarchy. Almost a union of the two, tyranny and anarchy. You call it anarcho-tyranny, oppression and tyranny of the righteous, and anarchy and lawlessness for the unjust. What is the way out of this great problem? Well, it's found in our text where we read not only of government in general, but this government, which is specifically referred to by the prophet Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What is this government that is being spoken of? Well, it is a government which belongs unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the glorious person, the Savior, the mediator of God's elect. He is spoken of here. He is the one who has come in the fullness of grace and power. In order to save his people, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and he accomplished perfect righteousness, and he reigns as a king. Indeed, if you compare um, what's said here of government with what's said in verse 7, you'll notice that government is used there as well, only as a parallel to the word kingdom. And surely that's a word that's familiar to you if you've read the New Testament The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Jesus Christ or the kingdom of heaven, all referring to the same thing. That's what Jesus himself spoke of when he began to preach. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Central to his preaching was this message of the kingdom. The kingdom not of man, but of God. The kingdom of Not of tyranny, but of justice. The kingdom not of lies, but of truth. The kingdom of this, the Son of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. But the word government, that's from the Hebrew here, is a very rare word for it. It's actually used very seldomly in the scriptures. I want to tell you about one other place that it's used, a different form of the same word. And it's in a very particular part of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 32, 
which you might know is about our forefather, according to the faith, Jacob. Jacob, that man who was a deceiver. He, he lied to his father in order to steal the birthright from his brother Esau. And then after he went off and got married and then is trying to make his uh, way uh, out of where he was living, he discovers the fact that Esau, his brother after all these years, is on his tail and it appears as though he is going to be killed. So what he does is he separates his family into two groups and has them go on ahead. And there he is in the stillness, in the darkness, all alone. Will his brother kill him or not? Will his family be killed or not? What you find in Genesis 32, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Children, isn't that amazing? Imagine you're sitting there all by yourself in the darkness. And all of a sudden a man comes up to you and begins to fight with you, begins to wrestle. What's happening? Well, it's a fearsome battle that's taking place here. Read on. And what does it say? Verse 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. And he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. So that's the man speaking to Jacob who is fighting with him. And he that is Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. What's going on? Well, he recognizes that this one who is wrestling with him is the angel of the Lord. Read the whole passage. Read the book of Genesis. God, the son, the angel of the Lord, the eternal angel, the divine angel. He's appeared unto Jacob. He's wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob knows it. He's wrestling with God himself. He's wrestling with the son of God. And he says he won't let him go until he blesses him. What happens next? Well, it says in verse 28, and he said, uh, verse 27, and he, the angel, said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Israel, for a prince hast thou power with God and with men. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him, and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore it is that thou dost ask after my name. So why are you asking my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Penineal, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now that word that is power with God and men, power is the same Hebrew word that's translated government in our text here. This is a government and a power which was given unto that man, Jacob, who now has a new name, Israel, which means he has power with God. Power with God. There's a government and a power that is given unto this sinful man from God, a a power that he attained by God's grace and favor. Though he could have smited this puny little man, Instead, in grace, he allowed him to wrestle with God, to persevere in persistent faith and and petition until he received the blessing of God, which consisted in this, a government, a power from the Lord. Here we have 
a pattern not only for Jacob or Israel, but for all the spiritual Israel of the church, all believers. They receive a new power from God, a power that restores us as we are, kings and queens under the Lord, taking dominion as we were created to do. Though we, as a human race, join with the devil against the Lord, now he brings us back into his government or kingdom by his, by his covenant of grace, by the gospel in Jesus Christ. He gives us this power. What can we say about this power or this government that comes unto believers in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing to be said that this government is the supreme government. It is the government over everyone and everything. All other governments, individual, family, church, state, all must yield unto this King Jesus who wields the supreme government. This is not what he said in Matthew 28, verse 18, where he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He speaks this, having died on the cross and risen from the dead, receiving of his fa- from his Father a supreme government over all things. Or you think, for example, of what's found in the, um, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Another glorious prophecy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of the supreme Lord and king of kings. And his kingdom, it's synonymous with salvation. You notice how in that verse, it doesn't just speak of a authority over all things, over all of other governments, but as a government of salvation. He takes a slave of sin and the devil and makes them a slave of righteousness. For the salvation of which he speaks is not a salvation that is lawless, that is going to leave us in ignorance and slavery. No, the liberty of the gospel brings us to surrender all unto King Jesus. Think of that name from that Text, he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Surely there is no sinner here who would refuse that aspect of Jesus' work. You want Jesus to be your righteousness. Why? You know that if he does not give you his righteousness by faith, then you will go to hell. For there is no person who escapes hell, does not have a perfect righteousness before God. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. But the righteousness of Christ, of what he has done on your behalf, it is a free gift received by faith, making you righteous before God. But would you have that? Would you have him as your righteousness and not have him as your king to obey? This is what I think is the crisis of so many so-called Christians today. They think they can have salvation from their sins. They can have the Lord as their righteousness, but they will not have him to reign over their life. 
not over their personal life, not over their family life, not over their, their church affiliation, not over their political choices. No, they want to do what is right in their own eyes. And such people have no right to be called Christians. Such a person who has not surrendered themselves into the lordship of Christ ought to be very honest. You have no hope of eternal life. You have no hope from the wrath to come. You have no hope in the coming judgment. Yes, indeed, you're saved only by grace through faith. But the one who is saved by grace through faith, do you think that they continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid. The one who is saved by grace through faith in the righteousness of Christ, they become slaves of righteousness. They have the freedom to become the slaves of Jesus Christ. They recognize him as their Lord. This is a solution not only for individuals, but for nations. The solution not only for nations, but for every church, for every family. You look at the smallest level of society, you look at the whole world. What is the problem? Resistance unto the government of Jesus Christ. Note this as well about this government as we seek to understand it. And that is that it is a government that is upon his shoulder. Did you notice that? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does this possibly mean? Well, I think it's good to compare Scripture with Scripture. You notice that we made reference in the morning service to verse 4 to help understand this text. What does it say in verse 4? For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, as in the days day of Midian. So we talked in the morning about how the day of Midian is the great liberation from the Midianites under, Gibe, under the uh, judge Gideon. And the oppression which Jesus Christ takes away, the tyranny of sin and the devil, it is likened unto the oppression of the Midianites. So the Lord, he lifts that burden, he lifts that staff from the shoulder of those whom he liberates from the power of the devil and of darkness. What a terrible burden it is to be a slave of sin, to be weighed down with that knowledge that you are an enemy of God and given over to your lusts, to your vanity. The Lord takes that away, you see. But where does that burden go? Well, it falls upon him where it says that the government shall be upon his shoulder. You see that he takes all the burden upon himself where this government of salvation is concerned. What are we seeing in our own day? I tell you what you see is so often people who have responsibility and leadership What do they do? They take the burden of leadership and they take that burden and they put it all upon the shoulders of those who are under their authority. They pass the buck. Not willing to take on that burden upon themselves, what they do is they cause affliction and sorrow to those who are under their authority. That's the way of the world. That's why there's tyranny. That's why there's anarchy. But here is a government which is all upon the shoulders of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It falls upon him. 
And what else could we think of than the reality that this king, he bore upon his shoulder, bore upon his back the burden of the cross. Think about that. There is Jesus Christ upon his back, which is scourged with whips, upon his back, which has been bruised with countless beatings. There he is instructed to carry the dreaded cross upon his back, dragging it one inch at a time all the way to the dreaded hill of Golgotha, bearing that symbol not only of his suffering, execution, and death, but also the curse of God upon him for the sins of his people. He bears it upon himself for this kingdom, this government, which he is to inaugurate at his purchase with his precious blood, with his death and suffering. If you are the son of God, they said, come down from the cross. But it was his love for sinners like you and I that held him there. He took it all upon himself, all the burden of salvation, all the burden of his government, so that as he rises from the grave and is exalted to the majesty on high, there he is, having purchased a perfect government for himself. Government of salvation. If we lose sight of this, Christian, that is where you're likely to stumble. So often you think the weight of the world is upon your shoulder, the weight of your family, the weight of your church. It all falls upon you. It's all depending upon you. No. It's all fallen upon him. He has all authority in heaven on earth. He purchased it with his blood. Yes, he bids you to take up your cross and follow after him to take up the burden and suffering that he would appoint for you and to follow in his path. The way you do that is by looking unto his cross. In faith, looking upon him, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you in love and in that way, seeing the cross he would have you carry is the much lighter load. And indeed, the success of All of your efforts, of all of your obedience depends not upon yourself, Christian. It depends all upon him. So what you must do is rest your soul upon him, upon those shoulders where he bore the the burden of your sin and the punishment due to your sin. Rest your soul upon him and find that his burden that he asks you to take up is a most light burden indeed. What have we seen? Well, we've seen what government is in general and what this government is in particular. I want to speak just a few moments about your response to this government. You've heard all these things about the government of Jesus Christ. This is the only government that restores true order into the world. This is the reality. It's either Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. Do you want a life of chaos, of ignorance, of tyranny? Then, then turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ if you want peace, righteousness, order, goodness, purpose, meaning. And it's all found in this government of Jesus Christ. Three responses. First, surrender. Surrender. You are a rebel against God, sinner. You have no faith in Lord Jesus. You've turned away from him. You don't believe upon his name. You don't recognize him as your Lord. 
What is it that you must do? You must surrender unto him completely without reservation as your king. Here are your terms of surrender found in Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm which we sang from. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you would escape the wrath of God, escape the wrath to come, you must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That last clause, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We could also render that, take refuge in him. He is a mighty tower of safety. He will surely receive you in forgiveness and grace, but you must surrender unto him. It doesn't matter if you're the prime minister or the premier, the king of this nation. It doesn't matter if you're the lowliest, smallest person in all of Canada. The word goes out to all from the highest of all authorities, from the king of kings. Bow and kiss his royal ring. Surrender under his lordship. You are not the boss of yourself. No, everything must be surrendered unto him. Everything in your life, every relationship, every thought must be held captive unto him. Only those who surrender in this way can know of his great salvation, can know of his government. Now this is well. Not only surrender, but also strive for unity. Strive for unity. Isn't it true that a house divided against itself cannot stand? That a kingdom Divide against itself is an oxymoron. What would it mean if you had part of a king's kingdom at war, the other part of the king's kingdom? Conflict and division. Well, it would be an awful thing, wouldn't it? Obviously, there's a defect somewhere. But often in that great expression of the kingdom of God in the church, there can be division. What is it that we read in Romans chapter 14 and verse 15? Here you have a division about what people are eating. And what is it the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus would have his church to do if they have such divisions on things that have no moral significance? Well, read in Romans 14, verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What does it mean when you surrender into the kingdom of God, the government of God's Messiah? Well, what it means is that you strive for unity. How is it that you strive for unity? All must hold the will of Jesus Christ as supreme. Not my will, but if his will be done. How is it that churches can stay united and walk according to charity as, or love, as, as Paul writes? Well, it is because their hearts and lives are caught up with his glory, his majesty, his purpose, his mission. 
The Church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. It is an absolute monarchy. It is a totalitarian dictatorship. Only his will, only his word matters. Where there is a a total devotion unto Jesus Christ, where we all are devoted unto him and his word and his glory alone, and there is the foundation for unity. Oh, God grant, God grant, that in all the expressions of the church of Jesus Christ, this would be the focus upon him and his will, and may it be the case for all of us as well. Third and lastly, I would say this. There should be encouragement. Encouragement. When you read about Paul's words there in Romans 16, verse 19. For your obedience has come abroad from all men. I am thankful, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. An astonishing thing. The devil, who has so much power, so much more strong in us, the apostle says that he will be bruised under your feet shortly. Is he saying that we are Jesus? Surely it's Jesus who will trample the devil underfoot. Well, we are not Jesus, but we are the body of Jesus Christ. And where we are serving Jesus Christ in faith and obedience, and the reality is that Jesus Christ is in that work. You may look at how it is you're seeking to serve the Lord, seeking to serve your family, seeking to serve the church, and it may seem it's so very small, it will never amount to anything. Remember this, that eternity will show what it was the Lord was doing in your labors. The Lord knows what he is doing. The Lord knows his people. He knows how to cause his glory to shine by using weak and sinful and imperfect instruments to accomplish his will. You, Christian, give yourself unreservedly and wholeheartedly unto the obedience of Jesus Christ as your King of Kings. And find out what he can do. All praise and glory and honor belong unto the King of Kings, on whose shoulder is 